and welcome to our second lecture of week two. And today we're going to be talking about Kimberly Crenshaw's article Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex, a Black Feminist Critique of Anti-Discrimination Doctrine, Feminist Theory, and Anti-Racist Politics. So I'm very excited to talk about this article today. If you, you might know this or you might not, but intersectionality is a very big word in feminism, in feminist theory, and Kimberly Crenshaw is the scholar who came up with this, who coined this term intersectionality, and until this class I'd never actually read this paper, read her work, so I'm really excited to go through this today with you all. So um, this lecture will be broken up into two, like the other ones, around 20 minutes each. And the both of these lectures will focus on the article because it's, um, I think that's, there's an, uh, enough to talk about. So we'll just talk about the, the article, but I just wanna say first a little bit about uh, Crenshaw. So Kimberly Crenshaw is a pioneering scholar and writer on civil rights, critical race theory, black feminist legal theory, mm. and race and racism and the law. She is the Isidore and Seville Sulzbach Professor of Law at Columbia University and a distinguished professor of law at the University of California, Los Angeles. Her work has been foundational in critical race theory and in intersectionality, a term she coined to describe the double bind of simultaneous racial and gender prejudices. Her studies, writing, and activism have identified key issues in the perpetuation of inequality, including the school-to-prison pipeline for African-American children and the criminalization of behavior among black girls. Through the Columbia Law School African American Policy Forum, which she co-founded, Crenshaw co-authored with Andrea Ritchie, Say Her Name, Resisting Police Brutality Against Black Women, which documented and drew attention to the killing of black women and girls by police. Crenshaw, and the African American Policy Forum subsequently launched the Say Her Name campaign to call attention to police violence against black women and girls. Crenshaw is also the co-author of Black Girls Matter, Pushed Out, Overpoliced, and Underprotected. Her writing has appeared in the Harvard Law Review, the National Black Law Journal, the Stanford Law Review, and the California, the Southern California Law Review. She is a founding coordinator of the Critical Race Theory Workshop and co-editor of Critical Race Theory, key documents that shaped the movement. In 1981, she assisted on the legal team of Anita Hill during her testimony at the confirmation hearing of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Crenshaw has facilitated workshop for human, workshops for human rights activists in Brazil and in India and for constitutional court judges in South Africa. She serves on the Committee of Law and Justice of the National Academics of Science. Her groundbreaking work on intersectionality 
was influential in the drafting of the Equality Clause in the South African Constitution. She authored the background paper on race and gender discrimination for the United Nations World Conference on Racism in 2001. She served as the rapporteur for the conference's expert group on gender and race discrimination and coordinated NGO efforts to ensure the inclusion of gender in the WCAR conference declaration. So that was taken from uh, the Columbia Law School uh, website. And now we're, let's jump into the article, see how far we get in this first lecture. So the problem that Crenshaw is pointing to in this article is what she calls the single issue framework and of discrimination, the single issue framework of discrimination. And in this article, she's going to examine this single issue framework and show why it's problematic in, th in three particular places. So first, she uses anti-discrimination law and shows how the single issue framework is a problem um, and er erases black women. Then she's going to talk about this issue in feminist theory and anti-racist politics. So what's the single issue framework? So Crenshaw argues or points out that there's a tendency to treat race and gender as mutually exclusive categories of experience and analysis. So one way to think about this, she says, is that all women are white and all black persons are men. Or um, she has other language for this, so the, she talks about the, the paradigmatic case, which just means like the, ex the exemplar case, the, the example of something when we think of uh, sex di discrimination in this case is sex discrimination as experienced by privileged women, so white, affluent, mid um, able-bodied, heterosexual. And for racism, the paradigmatic case is privileged um, people of color, so not black women. So let's jump into the anti-discrimination framework uh, discussion. So she looks at three cases, and all these cases are class action cases. So uh, at least in Canada, and it sounds like from the description of these cases that it's the Canadian system is similar to the American system. So in Canada, a class action lawsuit is when you have a big group of people who are harmed, and instead of bringing one case against whoever is uh, um, apparently did the harming, allegedly did the harming, instead of bringing a court case for each one of these um, harmed individuals, what you can do is bring a single case that represents all of these people who were harmed. So for example, in Canada, one um, recent um, big class action case that was in the news was at the uh, was political protesters at the G 
20 G8 whoop, summit in, here in Toronto who were who alleged that they were um, harmed by police conduct. So instead of each protester having to get a lawyer and then bring their court their um, court to their case to court, I think that seemed weird. What you can do is you can all go together to a lawyer and say, hey, we want you to bring a case based on this class, this group of protesters who are in Toronto at this time, at this protest against the police, and we'll do it all together. So this is supposed to um, improve access to justice for people, saves, saves costs, saves the court time. But one thing that needs to happen first for this, for there to be a class action, is the class needs to be certified as a class. And basically, the idea behind this is, if we're gonna, if we're gonna do this court case as a class action, this means that one person will be the representative of that class. One person will tell their story, and the court will decide based on the facts of that one person's experience whether or not um, they've, they, they agree with the plaintiff, so the person who was harmed, or the defendant, the person who allegedly did the harming. So in order for this to make sense, courts have to decide whether the representative is going to be a good representative of the group. And there's a number of factors that they take into consideration, things like Okay, were the harms across the group sufficiently similar? Does this one person represent that that group well? Those kinds of things, and then the court finds that those things that it's a good good group, a good um, yeah, a good group to to bring just one case. They'll certify it as a class. Um, so that's so here in this article, we're looking at three class actions and courts responses to recognizing black women as representatives of those class of that of that class of plaintiffs so the first case is um, to graph and read and general motors so here's a little little uh, law tip the V between two names in a court case is um, pronounced as and, not versus. So that now you're in the, the legal no, and you can, um, it'll impress some lawyer by accident. So in DeGraff and Reed and General Motors, five black women brought a suit against General Motors alleging discrimination against black women. And there was evidence of discrimination against black women. But what the court found was that discrimination couldn't be alleged against black women. Discrimination had to be argued as either sex-based, so on the grounds that they were women, or race-based, so on the grounds that they were black. But the evidence didn't support those things. So the evidence showed that General Motors did hire white women. Their, much of their sec secretarial staff was, were white women. And they also hired black men. So 
these, so to graph and read, couldn't show discrimination against uh, women because white women weren't discriminated against and couldn't show race discrimination because black women, or sorry, black men weren't discriminated against. And the court found that this, that DeGraff and Reed was asking for a super remedy, asking for something that um, wasn't in the uh, in the in the legis in the le in the legis in the act, sorry. And um, so the co the court dismissed this case. Um, and one interesting thing that I want to point out is a footnote, footnote twelve, where Crenshaw points out that given the reasoning in this court that you can't combine two classes of discrimination, that you only have to show one or the other, you would think that it would be difficult for white men to show what's called reverse discrimination, where they're discriminated against because they're, um, they're white men, which is a requires a combination of race and sex just like the DeGraff and Reed case, but there has been no issues, or at least this issue hasn't been a problem for courts in um, adjudicating discrimination cases, reverse discrimination cases involving white men. So the second case we'll look at is, or that, I mean that Crenshaw <laughs> looks at, is Moore and Hughes helicopter. So in this case, the plaintiff the plaintiffs alleged discrimination by their employer Hughes Helicopter on the basis of race and sex, and Moore was put forward as the class representative, and Moore was a black woman. And the court found that Moore couldn't represent the class of employees because Moore wasn't claiming discrimination um, based on sex, but was only claiming discrimination as a black woman, specifically. So here we have um, kind of the opposite, opposite problem of the last case, where DeGraff and Reed wanted what was alleging discrimination based on being a black woman, and the court said that was uh, not allowed. So the court found that Moore needed to show that there was statistical evidence of discrimination against black women alone and couldn't use statistical evidence of sex or race discrimination, but had to show statistical evidence of the overlap of sex or race discrimination specifically against black women. Um, and I think there's some really, Crenshaw makes great points in this section about the court's view that white women are absent a racial referent. So that some, for whatever reason, well, I mean, for racist reasons, <laughs> when a black woman alleges 
discrimination, she is she's found to be not able to represent all women, but a white woman who alleges discrimination is seen as as alleging discrimination as a female where there is no racial referent even though obviously there is a racial referent it's just invisible and the racial referent is whiteness so um you know so these this crenshaw says you know a few things about this about how there's no need for white women to specify discrimination as white females because the whiteness here is not a disadvantage but a privilege and this is something she repeats again about how discrimination is really f discrimination law anti-discrimination law is really focused on the on race and sex when they act as a disadvantage but when they act as privilege they become invisible as if they're not significant anymore. So in Moore and Hughes' helicopter, Moore was uh, was found that she was unable to represent the class because she her ex the court found that her experience was too different from the general class of women. So in the first case, uh, it was too much the same. It had to be the same as discrimination against women or racial discrimination. And in more, it's her experience is deemed too different. And we have the same thing in pain and Travanol, except with race this time. So two in pain and Travanol, two black female plaintiffs are alleging race discrimination on behalf of all of the black employees at Travanol. And in this one, we have some good, um, we have, there's a little bit of positive because the court does find racial discrimination against um, pain or for pain and uh, awarded back pay. So that's, it was a partial victory, but the court found that pain and her other and her co-black female plaintiff couldn't represent um, all the black employees at Travanol. They could only represent black women. So once again, they were their experience was found to be too disparate from the other black employees in order to represent them. And one of the points that um, Crenshaw makes is the impact that these, that this splitting, this single issue framework has on unifying people in, in, in fights, in the fights against anti-discrimination. So instead of, instead of a group of employees being unified around say a black female employee who is at the intersection of of um let's say employer discrimination because of this single 
access the single issue framework, what we have is the employees, this community is split. So black women might have to bring their own case and then white women bring their own case and black men bring their own case, which means that instead of there being kind of a, a reason for the collective as a whole to fight against discrimination within their employers, we have, um, we have people being split and people's privileges being dependent on, on other people being disadvantaged or at least people um, gaining or people being there being a remedy for one person's discrimination might not not impact someone else's discrimination um, and this idea about the way that this lack of thinking about intersectionality fractures our communities or just the the fracturing impact of intersectionality on communities fighting discrimination is something we'll talk more in the second lecture. So I'm just going to wrap up and then we'll leave the feminist theory and anti-racist politics for the next one. So um, one thing that, that Crenshaw mentions is she talks about this idea of a bottom-up approach versus a top-down strategy. So a top-down strategy for Crenshaw is using the singular issue framework, what she calls a but-for analysis, to ascertain if there's uh, race and sex-based discrimination. So you can think about, okay, but for one quality, insert one quality, say, but for being a woman or but for being black, there I would not be discriminated against. So this is the top-down strategy. And I think the top-down, um, there's a great kind of top-down metaphor that Crenshaw uses when she talks about um, people being kind of under the floor of, you know, like everyone who's not discriminated against for some reason is on the main floor is how I picture it, and then people who are discriminated against are in the basement. And the people who only have one thing they're discriminated against are kind of at the top, and those who have more are at the bottom. And so this top-down strategy um, is looking only at those people right at the top and just and excludes and makes invisible people who have intersecting discrimination um, who are discriminated against on the basis of multiple uh, ish, multiple things. So the so this is contrasted with the bottom up approach, which is where those who combine discriminations um, are the ones who are kind of made center or are. Um, so she says, for example, the ones who combine. Um, discriminations, for example, challenge an entire employment system, but this is uh, impossible on this single issue framework. So we'll stop there and we'll pick up the second half in, uh, on, in the next lecture. All right, talk soon. Bye. Welcome to part two of our lecture on Kimberly
Crenshaw's article Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex, a Black Feminist Critique of Anti-Discrimination Doctrine, Feminist Theory, and Anti-Racist Policy and Anti-Racist Politics. So just a little summary of the last things we were talking about. So Crenshaw's point in taking us through those three class actions is to outline the various the various ways that black women can experience discrimination. So sometimes she writes black women's discrimination is similar to white women's experience. So black women's discrimination is sex-based discrimination in the kind of stereo or the single issue framework white women's experience. Sometimes it's similar to black men's experience. Sometimes it's double discrimination. So sometimes it's about the way that practices that discriminate on the basis of sex and practices that discriminate on the basis of race are combined. Um, and then, but this is different from another way that black women experience discrimination, which is discrimination as black women. And it's not it's not just the sum of race, of sex, and race discrimination, but as black women. So I think the first case is um, helpful here, the DeGraff and Reed one, where discrimination was specifically against black women. So it seems like there weren't, there the, the hiring practices allowed white women to be employed and the hiring practices hired black men as employees. So we're not talking about the combined effects of, uh, of discriminatory practices on the basis of race and sex, but we're talking about discrimination specifically of black women as black women one kind of word. And Crenshaw, so one thing Crenshaw points out is that the problems of excluding black women can't be solved just by including black women within this established structure. Because part of what she's saying is there's, there's a whole experience that's missed that this inter the intersection of racism and sex sexism is not just the two things being combined but a whole new type of discrimination that's created where these identities intersect so one one um, metaphor that has really stuck with me um, it's not in this article, but, and you know, I can't remember where I read it, but um, the metaphor was the difference between combining building blocks and combining paint colors. So we might think that when discrimination on the basis of sex meets discrimination on the basis of race, it's like combining building blocks. So anyone who's discriminated on the basis of sex has, let's say, the yellow building block. Anyone who's discriminated 
on the basis of race as the green building block. And as a black woman, you have both a green building block and a yellow building block. And, and Crenshaw says, sometimes, sure, sometimes the experience of discrimination is because you, because black women are at this intersection of practices and it can be just the combined effect. But sometimes she says it's, it's, well, she doesn't say it's like paint mixing, but let's use that metaphor. It's like paint mixing where yellow combines with green to make something totally different. You know, I mean, maybe other colors would have been better, like red and yellow. So red and yellow combines to make orange, just an experience that isn't captured by either the red or the yellow. So um, let's move on to her section on feminist theory and anti-racist politics and um, some of the ways that she talks about uh, intersectionality being erased and the experience of black women being erased in feminist theory and anti-racist politics and also the way that that um, kind of anti-sexist movements and civil rights movements are complicated by this intersectionality and um, and so we I mean we need we need to be talking and thinking about this intersectionality so she says this framework the single issue framework is reflected in much feminist theory and to some extent anti-racist politics and she gives the example or she she tells the story of sojourner truth who used her own life to reveal the contradiction between ideological myths of womanhood which was based on white womanhood and the reality of black women's experience and Crenshaw points out that look this is only going to be useful to the extent that white women are willing to reject racist attempts to rationalize this contradiction because black women, um, because through a racist lens that gender is white, that what we're, what feminism is fighting for is white women, change for white women and addressing white women's issues this idea of black experience won't be seen as bearing on true womanhood because womanhood is is racialized as white. So she says when look when feminist theory and anti anti-racist politics talk about women's experience and women's aspirations but what they're really talking about is white women's experience and white women's aspirations, then black women are excluded and uh, made invisible. And also these racist structures are perpetuated. And we might think about this um, in the context of reading Simone de Beauvoir's introduction. So we didn't read the rest of the, of the book, but because um, that would take many classes. But 
we did, um, I talked brief, I talked briefly about one of the criticisms against Beauvoir being that the book is a description of women's experience, what it is to be a woman, but that there's the invisible, there's the, the invisible race, um, um, marker, which is that it's not women's experience. It's white women's experience. And for me, I, I think that this doesn't mean that we throw out the book because it's, I think there's still a lot to learn from, from Beauvoir's description of white women's experience. There's, and it's, you know, we don't have to think about these things as black or white, so to speak. So there makes, it's, it's very plausible that there will be, that there could be overlap between experiences and that talking about um, one experience of sex discrimination can help illuminate other experiences of sex discrimination. So I still think there's um, a, a place, but the, I, I mean, a huge problem is to make invisible the, the racial aspect of that experience. So it's, it, Beauvoir's Second Sex is a, an amazing description of white, affluent, etc. women's experience. And that might be useful for a broader group, but um, it can't be the only story that we're listening to and thinking about. Um, so Crenshaw. So she gives some great examples of of this playing out in in feminism. So she talks about, for example, a, a statement that is common in feminist literature of men and men and women are taught to see um, women as dependent, limited abilities, and passive, and men as independent and strong and things like this. But she says, look, this quote-unquote observation overlooks anomalies created by the cross-current of racism and sexism. So she says, black men are not viewed as powerful in the way that white men are viewed, and black women are not seen as passive in the way that white women say they're seen as passive. And she gives the example of black women working, traditionally working outside the home in numbers that are far larger than white women's participation in the workforce. And she says, look, you might see that, that difference and think, oh, well, sex discrimination that affects white women and keeps white women at home doesn't affect black women. But that's not true. Crenshaw says, look, Black women must work for other racist reasons often or very po very possibly other racist structures mean black women need to work more than white women. 
but there's there's still up against these norms of womanhood and she says this cre often creates personal emotional and relationship problems in black women's lives then um she goes on to talk about uh, sexual assault and the impact of um, this and to show the difference in this kind of how these myths of womanhood are applied and and um, affect black women and, and white women differently. So I won't go through this section in too much um, detail because it's it's kind of an intense, um, it's a difficult section, but I just want to summarize what she says at the end. So she says, look, in conclusion, sexist assumptions about womanhood, in this case, chastity, which is about white womanhood, and racist assumptions about sexual promis promiscuity, combine to create a distinct set of issues confronting black women. So the combination of sexist and racist assumptions combine to create something totally um, new and terrible for that, that black women are confronting that, that can't be seen from the white woman perspective or the um the privileged the racially privileged perspective so she says look the historical fact that the protection of white female sexuality was often used as a pretext for terrorizing black communities is paradigmatic of this dilemma so it's it's exemplary it ex exemplifies this dilemma that's created at the intersection of race and gender where race and gender meet and she mentions again the way that this fractures um, communities or can um, create different tensions within communities and she says that black women are caught between ideological and political currents. I thought this was a beautiful line that combine first to create black women's experiences. So we have these, these oppressive structures that are, are viewed singly or have this single issue structure framework. They combine first to create black women's experiences and then bury them, and then make them invisible. And I also just want to point out um, footnote 59, where she talked about um, a really neat, uh, an exercise where students in a law, a law class, I think, were asked to list their three primary factors for describing themselves. And she talks about how white women list their gender, but not their race. And that all women of color listed their race first and then their gender. And this is an idea that I think we've seen a number of times now about the way that dominant positions have 
are made to be invisible, are invisibilized. I mean, I just think this, this is just, I just think this is fascinating, right? So if you think of, I mean, I think we talked about this already, but like awards categories. So you have best female chef and then just best chef or best musician and then best female musician. And it makes it seem like there's no referent. It makes it seem like it's a neutral, like woman is neutral, a neutral, a racially neutral word. But these are not racially neutral words. And how we also, how, you know, Crenshaw's point about when these things are privilege, are privileges for us. So as a white woman, being white makes, uh, is, gives me access to privileges. The way that then this becomes invisible in my experience, I don't list, I don't think of race, of my race as being um, a big part of how I experience the world, even though, of course, it's a huge part of how I experience the world. It's a huge, it, it changes how the world reacts to me, how I move through the world, how I feel in different settings, um, but it's this, it's, it, it's made invisible. So just, just finish up a few last points. So Crenshaw talks about, um, she says, well, look, the point is not that, um, African American are, African Americans are involved in a more important struggle. So the point talking about that exercise where race is listed first and um, about intersection, the point is not to say, look, race is a more important struggle for black women or um, for women of color. But, I mean, because this would go against her whole point about the problem of single issue framework. So she says, look, the, my critique of the single issue framework problematizes this claim that you can have one struggle and and distinguish it from others, or that you can prioritize one struggle or over another. Because anytime you maintain because maintaining the single issue framework is always gonna leave out and exclude and make invisible the experiences of those who are at intersections. And there's lots of intersections to talk about. So this paper obviously is focusing on the intersection of race and and sex or gender. Um, but we could think about lots of other identities that intersect, say, um, being queer and being um, black or being, um, or, or, you know, class, the way class privilege uh, intersects with other um, things. So we, there's lots of, there's lots of different kinds of intersectionality. Um, so she also has a discussion about some, she also talks about some um, other examples of, of, um, 
of say reports or views that show there's this missing intersectional viewpoint. So she talks about, for example, this man Wilson, who is talking about this that there's a problem with black families, which is that there um, there's too many uh, like there's too many black mothers who are the heads of households and um and you know Crenshaw just is talking about the lack of intersectional analysis of these issues and the sexist assumptions that underlie these issues so for example the assumption that there's something inherently problematic about having a um, a matriarch, a, 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 a woman-led household. So she finishes by saying um, that, that we need to include intersectional analysis. We need to think about the way these discriminations combine. We need to hear from voices who are at these intersection and um, you know, for feminism, it's not a complicated, I mean, the, the prescription isn't complicated. Feminism must include analysis, analyses of race if it hopes to express the aspirations of women beyond white women. And we, and we can add other groups. I mean, feminism has to include analysis of, of heterosexism, of classism, if we are, if we want to be talking about women in the very broadest sense. So I'll stop there and um, I'm very much looking forward to discussing all of these at our in virtual class meeting on Monday. So remember, we will be meeting on Monday in our class time, so 1 to 2.30 on Zoom, and there is a 5% um, grade to get 5% for um, attending that. So I hope to see you there because I would, I can't wait to hear your thoughts on these um, readings. If you, I hope you're having thoughts and I can't wait to hear them. All right, well, enjoy the weekend and see you on Monday.